So I've said this before, but anything that's important is worth saying again. Uh, if you've never read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, written in the 1600s, it's an absolute must. You almost can't be Christian without reading that book. And I'm overstating the case, but it is a masterpiece. Like up until, what, the 70s, it was the most widely read book next to the Bible in the entire world. I don't think that's true anymore, but it was that important because it is a masterful genius analogy to the Christian life or allegory to the Christian life, right? You're introduced from page one to this pilgrim named Christian, only he isn't Christian when the book starts out, where he realizes that he's living in the city of destruction, that he realizes his life is destined for hell. And he runs, and he runs to the cross and through the cross on the narrow road toward the celestial city. And the whole book is basically all of the challenges and the false paths that Christian, the pilgrim, confronts. Um, and it's, 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 what's, what's amazing is what was written, you know, 400 years ago is every bit as applicable today. Like the same temptations we face as people are the same t- temptations he faced. Um, and, and you read and you're like, wow, that's me. Like I, I've been tempted by that before and I've been tempted by that before. And, and to me, it's, a, it's just such a perfect picture of the Christian life because as he's making his way down the narrow road, there's all of these detours that, that he's tempted to take, like the road of legalism or he ends up in Vanity Fair or there's this point where the, the narrow road goes up this hill of difficulty and there's other alternate routes around that are easier which really aren't around. And you realize that, man, this is such a, a brilliant uh, uh, creative fiction that's an allegory to the Christian life that really brings up the same things we face, right? Challenges for the journey. I mean, how many, how many of us wouldn't want to know ahead of time, like, this is what I'm going to face, these are the temptations. It's part of, of, of having a successful journey is understanding the challenges out there. And when I think about those different detours that are out there that are, are, we're, we're subject to, whether you live in the 1600s or the, or the 2000s, um, I think of Matthew 6, actually, and John Bunyan used a lot of the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in his book. But it's like this, this chapter, chapter 6 in particular, is, is almost like Jesus preparing his disciples for these detours that are dangerous detours, right? If, if you kind of pan back, because we're, we're, we're looking at the last little segment of chapter 6 that was just read a few minutes ago you realize Jesus is pointing out these danger zones, danger paths, like don't go down this way. The first one we looked at at the beginning of chapter 6 through 18 is like be weary of this, that you can start off living your life because you love God, because he loved you first. But it's easy for your love for God to be hijacked for the love of the praise of men. And pretty soon you find yourself fueled not by the greatness of who God is, but, but the greatness of who you, you are now and the praise that you get. And it's, it's almost like he puts one of those signs in front of the praise of men saying, wrong way, you know, do not enter, wrong path, easy, so subtle and so subversive and so seductive to be, to be drawn towards what people think of you, to make that run your life. Well, last week, we looked at another route, um, which is different than the praise of men. It's, it's the seductiveness of wealth, right? And Jesus said, listen, do not, and he uses a lot of do nots in this chapter, 
Like, do not practice your righteousness before men to be seen by them. And now, that last week, he said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Or, excuse me, treasures on earth. Where, yeah. That's going to go on the tape forever. But I, <laughs> I corrected myself. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth because it's not going to last. So that is another route. It's another path that, that you and I, and these, I'd be willing to bet many in here have taken one of these routes. Or maybe you're still on this route. Or you're in love with wealth because of the power it gives you. He's like, don't go there. Wrong way. Don't go down this path. Just like John Bunyan. Don't go down this path. Don't go down this path. Now we come to a third. If you will, just think of a little detour. That's really easier for us to go down. Only this one is not the praise of men. It's not the seductiveness of wealth. This one is fear. Or to be more specific, anxiety, worry, both of which are expressions of fear. Three times he tells us not to be anxious. Three times in the passage that was read. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Says it again, verse 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what should we eat or what should we drink or what should we wear? And then he concludes this section. It's all one big paragraph. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day, for the day is its own trouble. Three times. The first two of these commands deal with the basic necessities of life, of food and water and, and clothes, all of which you need at some level to, to, to live. And the third one... Uh, is a little bit more general and deals with the future, fear of and anxiety and so forth, or what's going to happen tomorrow. So three times he tells us, this is, a, this is a path that's so easy to go down, and I think most of us, if we were to say, have you ever traveled this path of worry and anxiety, raise your hand, you'd probably all go, oh, that's me. Again, Jesus is addressing real life. He's hitting us right where we live. What I want to do, though, is I, want, I think it's really important for us to pause and ask an important question. What does, exactly does he and does he not mean by be anxious or be not anxious for, for your life? Like, what exactly does he mean? Well, let me start by telling you what he does not mean. He does not mean that we as Christians should be careless, indifferent. Remember the, now it's an old movie. You know, watched it when my kids were little. Lion King. Hakuna Matata. What a wonderful phrase. You know, means no worry for the rest of our days. It's our problem free. Yeah, I'm singing actually. Singing pastor. <laughs> Philosophy, Hakuna Matata. He says, he's not saying no worries or don't worry, be happy. There's another song written about that, right? He's not saying be indifferent to the world at all. That, that, the opposite of being anxious is not indifference. So it can't be that. Moreover, there are things that we should be deeply concerned about, and things that you're deeply concerned about and anxiety tend to go together. So the same Greek word, here translated anxiety or anxious, is used elsewhere in a positive sense. For example, Paul the Apostle says this. He says, and he's arguing for the relative benefits of being single over being married. 
because he was single. He's not saying marriage is bad. He's just saying it's, it's a little bit more difficult. He's saying the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Whereas the married man, he's a little bit more anxious about how to please his wife, which is a good thing. Here, it's used in the positive. Same word. Uh, the single man, he, 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 his only anxiety, how do I please God? There's, there's a good anxiety that he specifies here. He says something similar about his own feelings about the church. He says, talking about his ministries, the, the daily, he experiences the daily pressure. That's stress. But it's good stress on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Like he deeply cares about the church. And when you deeply care about something, those are feelings of anxiety. Not all anxiety is bad. Or third, and this is maybe throw you for a loop. If it, He's talking about his, his young protege, Timothy, and how much Timothy, like Paul, actually cares about the church as opposed to other people. He says, I have no one like him, Timothy, who will be genu- genuinely concerned, same Greek word, translated anxious, genuinely anxious about the church because he cares so much. Now, you might say to me, wait, doesn't... Paul also say, be anxious for nothing. And in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your requests be known to the Lord. He does say that. In the same book as the last quote. So in chapter 2, he says, you know, I have no one like Timothy who's anxious about the church because he cares about the church, but don't be anxious for anything. Which tells me, unless he's contradicting himself, there's a good anxiety and there's a bad anxiety. There's something you, things you should deeply care about and other things you shouldn't care so much about. So what's the difference? What's the difference between, if you will, a deep concern or anxiety that is holy versus a deep concern and anxiety which is evil? Let me say that the decisive difference between the two is that the evil kind of anxiety, the kind we're not supposed to have or experience, is the kind that rises from doubt. Doubt about God. Faithlessness. In the middle of the text, if you are listening, he says, O you of little faith. The kind of anxiety that rises from our doubt that God loves us, that he's good, that he's sovereign, that he's faithful in every minute of every day, that is an affront to him and therefore evil. It it, it proceeds from an untrusting heart. It's, It's right in the center of the text. Paul's anxiety here, I don't believe, rises from doubt. It rises from love. He loves the church. He loves God's people. He loves God. Deeply concerned. That's a holy concern. A holy anxiety. The second thing to notice is that Jesus specifies, when he's talking about the scope of of what we're being anxious about, he's food, drink, clothes, He's talking about earthly things. So it's not just an anxiety that rises from doubt, but anxiety that rises from doubt over things that are temporal. That's, that's what he has in view here, and I, I think that's what he means. Uh, this kind of fearfulness that comes from a lack of trust in almighty, loving God um, over temporal things. And yet, isn't that 90% of the time exactly what we stress out over? 
Am I really going to drop those 20 pounds in six months? Is my Amazon Prime shipment going to make it here by Friday before I leave on vacation? Um, do I really look okay? Is my son or daughter going to find a job to put food and water on the table? Those tend to be the things that consume us, is the temporal, and often rising out of doubt. You can see why Jesus says, wrong way. Like, you've got to be careful of this path of living in fear. I almost sound like Yoda here, right? Beware of fear. It is the path to the dark side. That's what Jesus is saying. This whole anxiety that rises from doubt in God that, uh, about earthly material things. So the question is for us, so how, how, how do I, because all of us struggle with this. How, 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 do, how do we battle against this kind of fear that often paralyzes us and consumes us, our emotions, our minds, our thoughts? How do, how do we do battle against this? Well, the easy answer is, well, the Spirit of God, yes. The Spirit of God is powerful. The thing about the Spirit of God is the Spirit of God motivates us through truth, which is exactly what Jesus does. He doesn't just say, don't be anxious. He's like, here's why. Like, here are some basic reasons, if you will, weapons by which you can combat your own anxiety and fear about earthly things that rises from your doubt about who God is. Incidentally, again, the point between the two, the anxious fear Jesus prohibits is that which rises from doubt about God's love and faithfulness, especially over earthly things. So let me give you some reasons. One, because of God's constant care for his common creations. Jesus looks at his disciples. He's looking at us in the spirit, saying, listen, you need to go on a bit of a nature walk. And you need to get out of your anxious head, out of your anxious heart, and you need to actually see what's in the visible world around you. And one of the things you're going to notice is birds. He says, birds are amazing animals, right? If you get out of your head, out of your anxiety, and more importantly than the birds is how they live, right? They're not like farmers. They don't have to go to the grain store and buy seed, plant seed, water seed, reap the seed and store the seed. They wake up every day and they go out and there's food for them. Now, is Jesus saying that there's that birds don't work hard or that we should be passive or indifferent? No. Birds work very hard if you ever watch them. But if you've ever noticed, they, they don't have to actually stress over whether they're going to have a worm or a bug, right? They just get up each morning and they chirp and they sing. And his point is that, listen, if, if, if you go out every day and you're looking at the birds and he even... He even feeds blue jays. That's amazing to me. If there's one, one bird I hate, they have a horrible sound, a bad singing voice. It's like, and they steal the eggs from other birds' nests. Like, if there's one thing I want to blow away with a shotgun, I'm just saying. It's like, every day, your father feeds them. Every day. They're, they're not nervous Nellies. They know God's going to feed them. 
You know, I, so we were camping up in the high Sierras, six, 7,000 feet. And uh, it's one of those days where I'm, I'm out of my head. I'm out of my anxiety. And I'm just watching these uh, chipmunks. You know, they're scurrying around, they're chasing each other. Sometimes they'll grab a pine nut, but most of the time they're playing. Every once in a while, getting up on my picnic table and stealing a Cheeto. And, and it just struck me, you know, because I've snowshoed in this campground in the dead of winter, and it's covered by 50 to 20 feet of snow. And I was just like, how do these guys survive up here? Like, that, there's no exaggeration. 15, 20, maybe in a, during a drought year, five feet of snow. How do they live? Like hundreds and hundreds of these little chipmunks that spend most of the time playing. How do, how do they survive the winter? Why aren't they in support groups? What are we going to do this winter? They don't. They spend most of their time frolicking and playing, chasing each other, and yes, grabbing pine nuts, and somehow they make it. They, they survive. And, and, and Jesus said, okay, well, even less than animal life, let's go to plant life, right? Live with the lily of the field, right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't concern itself about brand names, whether it's slim fit, or whether it's a good color, bad color, or whether it's in style. The flowers of the field, they simply are what they are because God made them to be that. It's like the, the glory of how God has arrayed the flowers of the field, he says, is, is, is greater than Solomon, the greatest of, of the monarchs in Israel. Right? So when you leave here, I want you to, when you're pulling out of the parking lot, I want you to look at the field across the street. I don't know if you noticed it. Covered in purple flowers. Flowers which today are here and soon are about to dry up and die. God did that. So listen, the, the, the point of it is, if that's how God meticulously cares for birds and blue jays and meticulously like creates beauty and clothes for the ground, don't you think your Father in heaven cares more about you who's created in his image? I'm sorry, but biblical hierarchy of value places human life at the top, just the way it is. Are we to care about animals and birds and plants? Absolutely but we are not on the same level. So if he cares that much about his pets, how much more does he care about his own children, you and me? If you woke up every day and you knew my father has my back. Like, that's what a father does, right? A father by very nature and instinct and calling is one who protects and provides. Is God by his own self-choice said, you're my children and I will take care of you. And I will take care of you until the day that I bring you home. And you fulfill your purpose. That's, that's a big reason why. Just right there. Next time you find yourself, oh, I'm so anxious. Go for a walk. Look at the birds and the lizards and even the ants are fed. It's pretty amazing. That should fill our heart with a sense of, okay, God's got me. He's telling me, go out. That's what Jesus is saying, look. Second reason, and this is a negative one. Not negative as in it's not positive, but negative in the sense that it's not positive. <laughs> he says, reasons not to be anxious, because it makes us no different than unbelievers. 
He says, for the Gentiles, for, this, at the second time he, he commanded us, be anxious, don't be anxious. He gives a reason, solid reason, for the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them all. And when, when he says Gentiles here, I'm for, for people who don't, aren't, you know, saturated in the Bible, you're like, well, Gentiles? That's just like gentle? Gentiles? Gentiles just, they're, they're the pagan and Jewish people. Pagans are anxious about basic provisions of life and, and wealth and different kinds. Even their worship is anxious. Can you imagine? I really hope it's a good agricultural year, so I'm going to go up and present an offer to Zeus. I hope it's enough. Everything's anxious for them. It's like when you live this way, in anxiety, about, am I going to have enough to live? Am, 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 whatever it is, that, which rises from doubt over earthly things. We're basically denying what we say we believe. Didn't Jesus say, you're the light of the world? You know, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Part of that light, part of me being different and you being different and testifying to the world that you actually believe what you say you believe is to live with confidence and peace and not in anxiety. Right? Do you really believe that your father has your back? That he knows you have need of all these things and he will provide it in the measure he believes you need it. Paul said in, in Philippians, he said, I have learned how to be with little and with much. He realizes God sometimes reduces our level of income on purpose. And sometimes he raises it. And he's learned how to live without the kind of anxiety, whether he has much or little, because he's learned to trust in his, his father. What an amazing word. I, Jesus says it over and over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. Father, Father. What's the, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And when you find yourself without a whole lot of bread, what does he say? Give us this day our daily bread, because you're our Father. So just remembering, one of the ways you testify, your faith is expressed, is the absence of this fearful, doubtful worry in the presence of either much or little to the world. It says, it says out loud, without you even saying anything, I actually believe this stuff. I've never met a kid that grew up in a loving household Ever. Maybe you have, which I think would be the exception. I've never met a kid that was worried about eating food, that grew up in a loving family. Have you? My kids have never. Oh, what are we going to eat today? Now, they complained about the food that we do. That's an entirely different issue. That's an issue of contentment. But you find a child that lives in a safe environment where there's a father providing for his children and a mother is there and there's love. Mom and dad could be slaving over lasagna, and they're playing Legos, and they're playing American Girl doll to their heart's content. Why? Because they have been conditioned to trust. Your life needs to be conditioned to trust God at every turn as your father. Final reason, third. And you might think this isn't a reason, this, isn't a, this is a command. 
but it can't be a command without it also being the cause. And this is where this verse that we often take out of context is found, where he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You can't seek what you haven't tasted of. When you've tasted the kingdom, then you want to seek it. And so he's commanding people to go hard after what has already been given to them. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. But I want you to notice some important logic between verse 32 and 33. You notice the same word is used. He says, don't be anxious because the Gentiles seek after these things. Why do the Gentiles seek after them? Why do the pagan non-believers seek after them? Well, it's because that's what they care about. And what you care most about is what you're anxious about. And what you're anxious about, you inevitably will seek to solve. So if your children are precious to you, you care deeply about them, then chances are that is going to be where your concern and your anxiety is. And if you really care about them, and there's a sense of, healthy anxiety about your children, then you're probably going to make choices to protect them, give them the best education you can. That is the whole concept of anxiety and seeking go together. Concern, deep concern and seeking go together. And don't be like the Gentiles because they seek after these things. They doubt that there's a God or the gods don't provide without mass, massive payment. Um... And therefore, they're seeking after these earthly things. He's turning the tables, now using the same word, and saying, no. Listen, if you want to care about something, if you want to be anxious about something, then it needs to be the kingdom. That's where your heart's to dwell. And hasn't that been the message throughout the entirety of chapter 6? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where God is and where rust and moth cannot destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. If you want to care about something, if you want to deeply feel a sense of... I hesitate using the word anxiety. Make sure it's about eternal things, as Paul felt. That the kingdom is, is everything. It's, and people are excited about winning the lotto. lotto. It's like... Next to the lottery, like the kingdom is infinitely more important. And a person who has tasted it and discovers it understands that it is, the kingdom is, as Jesus said, it is the treasure that's hidden in the field. And when a person discovers it, they sell everything they have to get it. It's the pearl of great price that you find it, you can't, you, you'll, you'll sacrifice anything to get it. If you understand and feel and experience the power of the kingdom, of God's love, of his forgiveness, of his eternity, of the resurrection from the dead, of what God himself did on the cross to make you his children, then you're going to find something really worth being anxious about, worth caring deeply about. And when you have something that much better, then you know what? Whether you have a Gucci watch or you have real Levi's jeans, or whether you have $10,000 in the bank or you have one or none. Your heart's fine. Why? Because my heart's about seeking the kingdom of God. D.A. Carson, scholar, commentator, 
talked about this verse in this way. He said, it's so worthy of quoting. He says, to seek first the kingdom is to desire. Desire above all to enter into, submit to, and participate in the spreading of the news of the saving reign of God, the messianic kingdom already inaugurated. That is fancy word for it's already here. The spirit's already been given to the hearts of his people. So we experience kingdom in here. And to live so as to store up treasures in heaven in the prospect of the kingdom's consummation, another fancy word for when Jesus comes back and makes everything right. So here you have this. He's telling us, don't live in fearful. This is the wrong route to take. Don't live for the praise of men. Don't live for the allurement of wealth. And don't be fearful about earthly things out of doubt that your father has your back. So how, how, do we, how, how now are we going to respond to this teaching of Jesus? It, 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 it has to be with an honest assessment, right? Jesus doesn't tell this to con- us this to condemn us. He, bring, he tells us this to bring our hearts to light, to expose it to the light so then it can be healed. So if there's m- more anxiety over your finances just being straight, then over your lost neighbor's soul. Something's out of whack. If worshiping God with believers, not going to church, being the church, and worshiping Christ together isn't as important as the anxiety you might feel over not getting stuff done at home and mowing the lawn and fixing your roof. Something's out of whack in here. And he gives us this to assess us. So he's like, all right, disciples. The people he, he, he taught this to were just like us. And he tells us this out of love to bring to light what's really in our heart so it can be healed. And to say, all right, Lord, my priorities are way wrong. I'm worried about all the wrong stuff. I'm not deeply concerned about the right stuff. Help me. It always starts with that, right? It always comes with a humble acknowledgement, honest acknowledgement of our own failure. And out of that, the Lord begins a process of healing and reprioritizing life with the kingdom and with Christ and with God at the center. So, our part right now, unless I've been unclear, is to do business with the Lord. And what better place to do that than at the table? Uh, This is uh, the fullest, completest expression, at least what it represents, of just how much the Lord, our Father, is passionate about our salvation. So, um, I'm going to pray, and if, as I pray, um, those who are serving communion could come up. This is a representation of the body and the blood of Jesus and everything he went through to make us not God's pets, but his children. Um, ask yourself the question, is this really the most important thing in my life, or is it something else? And then just be honest with the Lord. That's where you got to start. 
There's uh, gluten-free and regular bread if, if that's an issue for you. And again, you can come up when the music plays and, and um, take it back to your seat. We've had people take it up the stairs with their families or you can take it by yourself. This is a time for you to respond to the word of the Lord through the elements of the Lord for the sake of your own soul. Let's pray. Father, I pray for this time. I pray for the spirit of honesty this morning between everyone in this room and you. Um, And if the priorities are completely out of whack and we're anxious about the wrong things, I pray that you would grant us just a genuine spirit of hopeful repentance. Use this bread and this cup, the symbols of God's, your your body and your blood. Let, let, Let them soak in. Let us, through the taste and touch of these things, be reminded of the infinite sacrifice of our king on our behalf to bring us the kingdom. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.